Well, good morning once again, and welcome to Ivy Creek. We're glad that you're here, glad that you have come to join us for worship this morning. And, and um, we want to get back on track with where we have been. For many of you, you know that we've been studying through the Gospel of Mark, and so this morning we want to get back on track. We've taken about three weeks away, and I know that y'all are just, you don't know what to do with yourself because you're not turning to the Gospel of Mark. So go ahead and turn to the Gospel of Mark this morning and to chapter 14 as we continue our study through there, we're going to pick up in verse 53 this morning and read down to the end of the chapter. Um, my, my friend and your associate pastor, Ted Williams, likes to make fun of me. Uh, he, he likes to poke at me and says that I like to use words with multiple syllables in them. I don't know if that's because he don't know words with multiple <laughs> syllables or not, but he calls them 50-cent words. Well, I'm fixing to use a 50-cent word, Ted. I'm just letting you know in ahead of time. Um, the word that I, I want to I bring to your attention this morning is the word juxtaposition. And I want you to know it's a really good word. It's an excellent word to be used. Webster's Dictionary defines juxtaposition, I can't even spell it, juxtaposition this way. It is the act of placing two or more things side by side in order to compare or contrast or to create an interesting effect by doing so. Collins Dictionary provides, I think, an even more helpful definition of juxtaposition. It says, it is the, it is the juxtaposition of two contrasting objects, images, or ideas is the fact that they are placed together or described together so that the differences between them are emphasized. Now, just, just, <clears throat> juxtaposition, I'm going to say it wrong all morning now, just letting you know in advance. It's going to be said wrong all day. That's fine. It's a very appropriate word, though, for the text that we're going to read this morning. And here's why. Mark, in this passage that we're going to read today, takes the trial of Jesus that we're about to read about and, and the trial of Peter, and he compares them. He contrasts them. He puts them side by side so that it can emphasize the differences in them so that you and I can pull those things out and then apply those things that we learn to our own lives. And that's what we're going to see in our text this morning. If you remember the last time that we were in Mark's gospel, Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as he was there in the Garden of Gethsemane, we noticed that Judas led this mob of club-carrying, sword-carrying uh, folks who were sent by the Sanhedrin to arrest Jesus. They did arrest him, and then verse 50 of Mark chapter 14 tells us that all of Jesus' disciples fled and forsook him. And that is the last thing that we really came up to, except for that we had the one guy there in verses 51 and 52 who ran away from Jesus naked. And so that's, everybody has fled away from Jesus, and now he is in the hands of his enemies. And that's where we pick up in verse 53. Read with me there. And they led Jesus away to the high priests, and with him were assembled all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent 
and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned Jesus to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers struck him with their palms of their hands. Now, as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch, and a rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, This is one of them. But he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech shows it. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. A second time the rooster crowed. Then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to be able to come to your house and to be able to lift our voices up and sing songs of praise to you, to be able to to read your scriptures, to be able to see the testimony of one who has placed her faith in you and following you in baptism, and to be able, as brothers and sisters, to, to now just spend time reflecting on the word that you've given to us by your Holy Spirit. So I pray, God, that in this time of worship that you would allow us to to understand your word, bring discernment to us, wisdom to us, and help us to apply the truths of what we read here this morning to our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So as I mentioned to you at the beginning, um, Mark sets up his narrative by describing what happened to Jesus, how he was led away to the house of of the chief priest, and, or to, uh, the high priest, in order to, to stand trial before the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. But then he contrasts that with how Peter, who was always so big and always so bold with his his statements, and he had bragged that he would never leave Jesus and he would never forsake him, but we read that that Peter did exactly that. He He was one of the all that verse 50 said forsook and fled from Jesus. But evidently Peter doubled back and 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 he wanted to know what was going on, but he didn't want to be recognized. So Mark tells us that Peter followed Jesus at a distance. And while Jesus is taken into a large room in the chief priest's house to to, to stand before a group of men who had long ago decided in their hearts that they wanted to see Jesus killed, Peter is seated below in the courtyard with the servants of those same men, warming himself by a fire that those servants had built. So the stage has been set, as it were. On this side, we can see Jesus standing trial before the Sanhedrin. And on this side of the stage, we can see Peter standing trial before the servants of the Sanhedrin. 
And it is the juxtaposition of those two trials that Mark wants us to see. And he wants us to compare them and to contrast them in order that he might emphasize something very, very important for each one of us to see for ourselves. So the spotlight, first of all, though, is on Jesus. And so that's the first thing that I want to begin with this morning. The first point on your outline just simply is this, is Jesus' trial. Mark tells us that Jesus is taken before the high priest who John's gospel identifies as Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the son-in-law of, of, and successor of a very powerful man named Annas. And the fact that Jesus finds himself before such powerful men, before such power brokers in, in Israel, tells us that, that he is before these ruling authorities. And that tells us that the trial that Jesus is facing is a formal trial. It is a formal trial, but as you'll notice, your first sub-point there under point number one is this. It's a formal proceedings, but they are illegal proceedings. This is a formal, though illegal, set of proceedings. Mark describes all the players who surrounded Jesus. It's the high priest, the elders, the, the scribes, which indicates a formal trial. But, but though it was formal, it was not being held where trials were normally held. When, when someone would go to trial before the Sanhedrin... As, as James Edwards has noted, the customary meeting place of the Sanhedrin was the Chamber of Hewn Stone, which was north of the Temple Sanctuary, adjacent to the Court of Israel. It was a formal place for a trial to be held. But on this night, however, you'll notice that Jesus' trial is, is being held in Caiaphas' home. That's the first thing that we ought to be alerted to. Second thing that we ought to be alerted to, and, and, and it's troubling, is the fact that this was being done at night. According to Jewish law, a person could not be tried at night. And yet, all the proceedings that we see taking place are taking place under the cover of darkness. And so we may wonder, why? Why are such things, why are these authorities playing so, so fast and loose with Jewish law? Well, one law that the Sanhedrin could not sidestep was the fact that it was illegal to execute a criminal on the Sabbath. And for the Jews, the Sabbath was, the day, was Saturday. And everything that we're reading about taking place was taking place on Thursday night, late Thursday night into early Friday morning. And so they realized that they could not execute Jesus on Saturday on their Sabbath, so they had to do everything expedited in order for him to be put to death before evening on Friday evening. Because on Friday evening, when sun went down, that was the beginning of the Jewish Sabbath. And so they had 24 hours. But that officially created another problem because according to Jewish law, a death penalty sentence could only be upheld by a second hearing, which could only occur after a full day of fasting by the Sanhedrin. And such was not going to happen. It would not do. See, the Sanhedrin finally had Jesus. They'd been trying to trip him up. They'd been trying to get their hooks into him for a long time. And they finally had him here in front of them. And they intended for Jesus to die just as soon as possible. One has put it this way. These religious leaders were obviously motivated by expediency. Such flagrant breaches of judicial procedure were of little concern to them when the hour demanded that they take quick action. Simply put, when there is a will to quickly remove an undesirable enemy... A way will be found, the law notwithstanding. So, understanding that, we shouldn't be surprised. Then when Jesus' trial winds up being a mockery of justice, 
Mark tells us in verse 55 that justice and fairness were of no real concern to the Sanhedrin. Notice Mark says, Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Well, if you found none, you ought to release the man. But they didn't. We like to say that a person is innocent until proven guilty. And we think about it this way. If someone is, 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 is taken to court, then the charges are read against them. And then, and then testimony is given to support those charges. And then the individual is given the opportunity to defend themselves against those charges. And then once all the evidence has been heard, then a, a decision is made of whether the person is guilty of those charges or innocent. And if a guilty decree is, is, is made, then punishment for that guilt is laid upon that individual. However, according to verse 55, everything worked the backwards way. You see, here we learn that Jesus' guilt and even His punishment was already decided. They already determined that He was guilty. And, and they already determined that they wanted to put Him to death. Now they just wanted to find something that they could hang on Him that would stick to allow them to do what they wanted to do. In fact, note the next subpoint on your outline that describes Jesus' trial it was littered by false accusations. False accusations. Mark tells us that the council sought testimony against Jesus, but none could be found. And even when they did finally wake somebody up in the middle of the night to come down and testify against Jesus, even then the lies that they told didn't line up with the lies that other people told. They couldn't even get their non-truths to be right with one another. And finally, then, according to verse 57, they did get at least two people who would come before them and make a statement. And they said that Jesus had said that He would destroy the temple made with hands and within three days He would build another made without hands. Which was not exactly what Jesus said because Jesus' words are recorded in John chapter 2, verse 19. And there when Jesus said what He did, He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus wasn't talking about Herod's temple. He wasn't talking about a temple made of stone. He was talking about his own flesh. He was talking about his own life. He was describing what would happen when him, the temple, would be put to death, but then he would rise again on the third day. But even, even though they took his words and they took it out of context and they twisted it, even then, Mark says, they still didn't agree with one another on what they were saying. I love what James Edwards has written. He said, even as a captive and with well-orchestrated human conspiracies against him, Jesus cannot be discredited. You ever thought about that? It doesn't matter how many say things negative and falsely about Jesus. The end result is he cannot be discredited because he is God of very God. Now, at this point, the high priest just has to be furious, and they, have, they, they haven't been able to find anything that they can hang on Jesus. Time is running out. The clock's ticking. They've got to get this thing going. And so he does what some have said is also an illegal move. He stands up, and he asks a question of Jesus directly in verses 60 and 61. And, and, and that's what we read. The high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? Then Mark says, but Jesus kept silent and answered nothing. You see, Jesus knew if he were to answer any of the questions, anything he said would be twisted and contorted and would come back to become self-incriminating upon himself. There was nothing that he could say to really defend himself. He was going to come under this attack regardless. 
But I don't think when Jesus refused to answer the question, he was just simply doing it for his own benefit or just simply as a tactical move. I think he was also fulfilling prophecy because you remember what Isaiah the prophet wrote about him in Isaiah 53 verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In fact, it's only at one point that Jesus actually speaks. He breaks his silence, and then notice subpoint C on your outline. When he does, Jesus reveals his identity. Jesus reveals his identity. The chief priest presses in on, on, on Jesus, and he asks him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And, and that title really was just his way of asking, Are you God's Son? And we should remember that up to this point, Jesus has kept his identity secret. You remember, he, every time that he would heal somebody, he would tell them, look, don't go into the cities and towns and tell them that. And when the demons that were possessing would, would recognize Jesus and, and cry out to him, you are the son of God, he would shush them and tell them to be quiet. Even when his own disciples in Mark chapter 8 declared that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, even then Jesus quieted them only here. At the very end of his life, when he knew that the next day he would suffer and that he would be crucified, does Jesus reveal his identity? And he says this, I am, verse 62, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power coming with the clouds of heaven. In his reply to Caiaphas, Jesus refers to two Old Testament passages. You can go back and read these for yourselves later. When, when he says that he's the Son of Man coming in the clouds, of heaven, Jesus referring to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. And he clearly puts himself in God's place. When he says that he had been seated, he will be sitting at the right hand of the power, that is a clear reference to Psalm 110, verse 1. And again, it's an unveiled claim to divine sonship. And the response of the high priest shows us exactly that that's the case. Because as soon as Jesus makes that statement... The high priest just rips his garment. He rips his robe. And that was a sign of profound frustration and anger. And then he says this, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And that leads to the final point, sub-point that I want you to see there. Sub-point D is that Jesus is condemned. Mark tells us that they all condemned him to be deserving of death. And, and with that verdict came the horrible beating and the mocking of Jesus. They began spitting on him. They wrapped a, a, a blindfold around him and then just began to have their way with him in what can only be described as just a horrible way, inhumane treatment. But there again, even in all of that, it was a fulfillment of prophecy. Prophet Isaiah in, chapter, in Isaiah 50 verse 6 said, I gave my back to those who struck me my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard, and I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. You should also be reminded, though, that Jesus had said this would happen. Mark chapter 10, verses 33 and 34. Jesus said, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be betrayed into the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and they will scourge him, and they will spit on him, and they will kill him. Everything Jesus said would happen to him is now happening. So this is the first trial we see. 
Mark describes it here in chapter 14. It's the trial of Jesus. It is a formal trial fraught with illegalities and filled with false accusations and witnesses who did not agree with one another. Yet it was a trial in which Jesus fully acknowledged his identity and subsequently was condemned to death. With that, Mark shuts the spotlight off on Jesus and he turns the spotlight to the other side of the stage and turns it on and here we see Peter. In juxtaposition, we see an unsuspecting Peter begin to undergo a trial of his own. And so that's the next point I want you to see on your outline. The second point is just simply this, Peter's trial. And Mark lets us know that, that while all of this was happening with Jesus in the upstairs, down below in the courtyard, Peter was also being interrogated. And as opposed to the formal proceedings that were taking place with Jesus, Peter's trial is characterized by the first subpoint you'll see there, informal proceedings. These, these proceedings against Peter were just taking place around a fire. Peter had run off when Jesus was arrested. And now he doubled back and he'd found his way down into this courtyard and he did not want to be known. He did not want to be identified. He was trying to blend in, but his, his attempts to blend in were thwarted by, as Mark describes, one of the servant girls of the high priest. She evidently was somebody who never forgot a face. Once she saw you, she remembered you. She remembered Peter. And she looked at him and she says, you, you also were with Jesus of Nazareth. Now that leads me to the next subpoint that I want you to see. I'm going to get to Peter's response in a minute, but here's what I want you to see. The next subpoint, Jesus' trial was filled with false accusations. Peter's trial was filled with true accusations. You see, she knew who Peter was. She knew who he was. And, and, and Peter moves away from her. He tries to get away from her, goes out on the porch to where some others are standing. And then according to verse 69, she began to say to those who stood by, this is one of them. Hey, y'all, this, this guy right here, he traveled with Jesus. He was with Jesus the whole time. And of course she was right. Peter had been with Jesus of Nazareth. He had been one of them. And by one of them, he was one of the disciples. Peter must have moved around again trying not to gather any further attention. According to verse 70, though, there were others who stood by and said to Peter again, Surely you are one of them, for you are Galilean, and your speech shows it. Galilee was that area north of Jerusalem. You remember where the Sea of Galilee is? And Nazareth was, was on down to the, to the south and, and to the west of that, and that's where Jesus was from. And, and all around up in that other area near Capernaum, that's where Peter and all of his friends were from. They were from this region of Galilee. And the region of Galilee very much is like what it was like for me when I joined the Navy and the first time that I ever had to speak out loud and people all around me turned and looked at me and they said, boy, you must be from the south. Galilee was kind of like that. The, the speech in that region kind of gave it away. Whenever you heard someone speak from Galilee, they kind of knew that's where you're from. Well, evidently when Peter spoke, his speech gave it away. He was from the region where all of Jesus' disciples came from. You've got to be one of his disciples. You're one of them. Well, 
Unlike Jesus, who was going through a formal trial in the room up above, Peter was undergoing an informal trial down in the courtyard. And unlike Jesus, whose trial was filled with false testimonies that did not agree with one another, Peter was faced with testimony after testimony from those around the fire, all of whom were truthful and agreed that Peter had been with Jesus and was one of Jesus' disciples, which leads to the next sub-point that I want you to know. Jesus Jesus fully revealed his identity, but Peter under trial hides his identity. When the first servant girl identified Peter as having been with Jesus of Nazareth, he responded in verse 68 by saying, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. One one commentator put it this way, said that Peter stumbled all over himself to disown his association with Jesus. And then when confronted the second time, now before an even larger crowd, Mark says in verse 70 that he denied it again. And then after being confronted about him being from Galilee and certainly being one of Jesus' followers, Peter just goes off in verse 71, we might say. Mark says that Peter began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. We might understand that Peter certainly called curses out. Maybe his language was profane. I have no doubt that it was, but profanity is not the only thing that's being communicated here. He's also calling, he's, he's taking an oath. I swear to you, I do not know this man of whom you are speaking. And the interesting thing about it is that Caiaphas had already placed Jesus under oath in the upstairs room. I adjure you by God, are you the Christ? And Jesus had answered. In the affirmative, here, Peter calls down a curse on himself, says, I swear to God, I don't know this man of whom you speak. And it's even worse because Peter won't even utter Jesus' name. This man of whom you speak. Three times, Peter denies Jesus. Three times, Jesus had said that would happen. Two times in our passage, the rooster crows. Jesus had said twice the rooster would crow. It's amazing how Jesus got everything right. He knew everything that would happen. And in verse 72, when the rooster crowed the second time, Peter immediately remembered what Jesus had said. In his account, Luke adds that the crowing of the rooster, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Somewhere maybe in the midst of all the beating and all the slapping, there was a window. And when that rooster crowed, Jesus turned and he locked eyes with Peter. Luke says and Mark says that Peter wept bitterly. The spotlight goes out. Shuts the light out. What we know is that Peter wound up leaving that courtyard. He walked away as a free man. As a matter of fact, notice the very last point, sub-point there on the point number two. Peter goes free. That's juxtaposition. That's exactly what Mark has done. He's put these two trials that were occurring simultaneously back to back here so that we might be able to look and to contrast those things and then to to make application to our own own lives. So, So what kind of applications are we to draw? Well, you'll notice that's the third point on your outline. I didn't put anything down. I want you to think about some of these things and try to make some application for yourself. I'm going to offer you a few of my own. But as you reflect on this, there may be some more that you're going to come up with 
for you personally. I would offer this first point of application to you, though. When we look at this passage, one of the first things that we ought to recognize is that it serves as a warning against self-confidence. It serves as a warning against self-confidence. You remember the braggadocio Peter was. Lord, though all else forsake you, I will never forsake you. Though everybody else runs away from you, I will stand side by side with you. In Luke's gospel, he says, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And yet Peter ran. And then even when he came back, when confronted with the opportunity to stand beside his Lord and to take the same responsibility that Jesus was going to take, Peter denied his Lord. There's no doubt Peter had confidence, but at the moment of crisis, it becomes to understand that his, his confidence was not properly placed. His confidence was in himself. He thought that he could take care of everything. He thought that he was man enough to stand up to all the opposition. But evidently he forgot what Jesus had just taught the previous night. On that final night before he was arrested and taken away in John chapter 15 verse 5 Jesus said this to his disciples I am the vine and you are the branches he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit for without me you can do nothing Peter found out that without Jesus he could do nothing his confidence had been in the wrong place it had been in himself he had not been abiding in Christ. He had been following Him at a distance. The Bible clearly teaches that pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It teaches us that we who come to understand that our confidence is not in ourselves must humble ourselves before a mighty God and then He will lift us up. It does not happen in any other way. So that's the first point of application that I would offer you. It's a warning against self-confidence. The second point I would make is that this passage challenges us to stand boldly with Jesus regardless of the opposition. What caused Peter, Petros, the rock, what caused him to crumble into a pile of sand was fear. He saw what was happening to Jesus. His, his confidence in Jesus took, took a hit and as a result, Peter found himself afraid and afraid to align himself with Jesus. I like what Philip Graham Rackin has written. He says, this scene alerts us to the fact that the real test of our discipleship is what we say and do when we are under pressure to take a stand for Christ. David Garland adds this. He says, few today are forced to choose between Christ and imprisonment or execution. Consequently, our denials of Christ may take more subtle forms, such as timid silence. We may not want to be identified as Christians. We do not speak out against those who sarcastically dismiss Christianity as a fantasy. We try to blend into the crowd of our master's enemies because we do not want to be jeered by others or to rock any boats. Brothers and sisters, the Christian faith calls for us to stand out from others. We must be careful that in our desire for comfort, we do not do implicitly what Peter did explicitly, and that is to deny our Lord. This passage challenges us to stand boldly with Jesus regardless of opposition. 
And that leads me to one final application that I would like to offer for your consideration this morning. You see, we must recognize the challenge before us is to stand boldly with Jesus, regardless of opposition, because one day, one day, based upon what he reveals about himself, we will all stand before him as our great judge. There's a great irony in the fact that you've got Caiaphas, the high priest, asking Jesus, are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus replies, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The irony is, is that the chief priest is a man who has rejected every evidence about Jesus that has been presented to him regarding Jesus' identity. He is a man who has made up his mind about Jesus and has decided that he needs to die. He is a man who has passed judgment on the Son of God and on the Son of Man, who the Bible says will one day return to judge both the quick and the dead. And by his response, Caiaphas, the high priest, doesn't really truly know who Jesus is. And Jesus, in his response to him, basically says, Look, pal, today you're judging me. But one day, I'm going to be judging you. And here's the point. That can be said about every single one of us in this room. In many respects, do you realize that Jesus is still on trial in every one of our hearts? Every day we have to grapple with the question, is Jesus truly who he says he is and who the Bible reveals him to be? And the real question comes is, it's not just what I say up here that really matters. It's what I live out and do that really makes the difference. Do I truly believe that Jesus is who he said he is? And here's the point. Jesus is still on trial. but Every single one of us is on trial as well. You see, there are some who reject Jesus out of hand. They don't believe that He's God. They don't believe He's anything other than a man. And they refuse to acknowledge it. There are others who say He was a really good man and a great example that we all ought to follow. But they still don't follow Him as Savior and Lord. And still there are others who say, well, He's a God, but He's just one of many gods. Friend, the Scriptures declare that Jesus is God's only begotten Son. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is God of very God. And the Bible declares that one day every single man, woman, boy, and girl will stand before Him to be judged and our eternal destiny will be determined by whether or not we have placed our faith in the Lord Jesus. All of us will stand before the great judge, the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are just three points of application that I've drawn out for you. There are probably many more. But as I close this morning, I can't help but go back to one little final point of juxtaposition. Because when Jesus' trial ended, it ended with an innocent man being condemned. When Peter's trial ended, it ended with a guilty man walking free. And in those two pictures, brothers and sisters, we get a picture of the gospel. Because Peter walked free, the only way he ever truly became free was because Christ died in his place. And every single one of us in this room, if we who also are guilty, would ever hope to be free. It will only become because Jesus Christ died in our place. 
see, here's the point. Christ's death and His resurrection is your only hope. In fact, if Jesus Christ had not suffered and died in our place as our substitute, you and I would bear the full brunt of our sin for eternity. And that's what makes grace so amazing. It's what makes love so amazing. It's what makes this extravagance of Jesus so unparalleled that He would die for me, the most unworthy man. Such love compels us to humble ourselves before Him and trust in Him so that He might save us and that we might follow Him wherever He leads. My sermon in the sentence this morning is simply this. Because our only hope is that Jesus suffered and died in our place, we must stand with Him or be judged by Him. What about you today? Is your confidence in yourself or is it in Jesus? Do you recognize that He is your only hope? If so, are you standing with Him? Or if you're honest, do you run away whenever the subject of Christianity or faith comes up? Brothers and sisters, each and every one of us are on trial today just as Peter was. What is your testimony? What do you believe about Christ? And does what you say match the way that you live? Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. And it is for the people of God. Let's pray together.